0: Well, one of the things that I have always been very, very proud of with Puerto Ricanos is that we are a very generous people. We literally give our shirts off our backs to somebody who needs it. This is this is something that that I've always really admired about in our culture. This is a good example, actually. Somebody I just met this this last weekend. I was in Puerto Rico, and I met this woman who is a professor at one of the local universities. She's from Chile. And she said the thing that most surprised her when she arrived in Puerto Rico as a, as a young bride was that there were no beggars, no begging children on the streets. She says everywhere in Latin America, Central America, the Middle East, the rest of the world, there were children like at the door begging. And she says, you don't see that in Puerto Rico. And so she said that was just really stunning to me. And then when she said that, I'm going like, She's absolutely right. I I had never, I just said it had never connected that, but she's really, she's right. It's true. And so then I began, we were talking about it and she says, I finally figured it out because I've now been here for 30 something years. And I think what it is, is that in Puerto Rico, if there is a child who parents can't take care of them, Somebody will always step up to take care of that child, whether it's a relative, even a distant relative, very frequently just a neighbor. Um, it's, it's a, it's part of the culture that the child should not be hungry, homeless, and badly dressed. Somebody steps up and that's part of our culture. And I, I wish that that were something that would never go away, that that kind of generosity, that willingness to take care of the next generation even if they're not your blood. That's something that I think is wonderful and but you know but that's changing. <laughs> Children are not begging but there are organizations that are taking care of them. So those kinds of things that are markers of of our culture, those kinds of things as they disappear, they are difficult and they're difficult to recapture them unless something like the disaster uh, that, that we had with the hurricane where all of a sudden those kinds of ways of behavior, they had to come back. We had to be neighborly, we had to be generous, we had to share, we had to take care of the hungry, the infirm, those kinds of things are curious to me. I hope that Puerto Ricanos will remember after Hurricane Maria, how they had to become the people that they were before they had electricity and running water and all the conveniences that they had worked and struggled for for so many years. But all of a sudden they had to depend on one another. Yes, they had to do it. And that's a good thing.
1: So when I spoke to the illustrious Esmeralda Santiago, I asked her what part of Puerto Rican culture she hopes endures in this ever-changing world. And she talked about the community and how Puerto Ricans look out for each other, especially in the rough times.
2: And what I found so fascinating about that is how she mentioned the hurricane. She talked about how the hurricane forced the people of Puerto Rico to become that community they once were because they had to, had to look out for each other. This is
1: a harsh colonial effect. They have to lean on each other because their local government problems are exacerbated by their colonial relationship with the United States, who continually refuses to send adequate aid to their territory. Big, big
2: facts, bro. With the Congressional Fiscal Board, La Junta, not making any strides for the people, withheld aid, and the ongoing troubles with power, food, and supplies, all that some people have is each other.
1: The weird thing is, even if it's not enough... They've got to make it enough. But maybe it's not so weird. Because Puerto Ricans have been there before.
2: Exactly. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. How Puerto Ricans have experienced hurricanes before and how they've overcame them
1: time and time again. Power. You. Suited up as my co-pilot, Wilson. In full drift mode with my boy, Lou. And this is the power of you in fiction. Episode 5, Huracan. So today... We're looking at two stories from the Reconstruction anthology. One of the two anthologies we sort of used as our guest list Rolodex this season.
2: Word. So Reconstruction was created by proud Puerto Rican comic creator and writer of La Kenya*, Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez, who recently received
1: the Bob Plant, the Humanitarian Award. Like, that's big time stuff, y'all. The Eisners, spam, And... Edgardo was able to work with DC Comics to put the Puerto Rican comic book hero, La Boda in Kenya, next to Alexa, Starfire, and Wonder Woman in order to help the island. All of the proceeds from the anthology went to the La Boda Kenya grant, which gives money to grassroots organizations on the island that work directly with people. The anthology features two stories from guests
2: you may remember from our Negrita episode. Esmeralda Santiago wrote about the San Felipe hurricane, which hit the island in 1928, and Isabel Diepa, whose story is set in the aftermath of the 1932 San Ciprian
1: hurricane. So we're going to start with Esmeralda and the San Felipe hurricane.
2: Okay, bet. All right, so this story, illustrated by John Woodard, colored by Jason Scott Lee, and lettered by Adrian Martinez, is fictional, but based on the real life experience of Esmeralda's father.
0: Edgardo got in touch with me when he was uh, putting this together. So he reached out to me to um, ask me if I would contribute. And it just so happened that I had just written a chapter in a book that I've been working on based on a recording that I had done of my dad talking about the last category for hurricane in puerto rico when he was eight years old (laughs) so so he had very specific information about it when edgardo asked me i said would it be okay for me to tell this story because um i think it's very historically relevant you know uh, for for the uh, for an anthology so he agreed and sent it to him and he had he edited it i mean i think the decision about he asked me would it okay uh, would it be okay to to do it this way with english and spanish and i said yes of course you know um so it was not it it was not my original idea it really came from from him as an editor and i thought it was a very 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 smart idea and and uh, i think it works and um, i mean i think in puerto rico now especially you know a lot of people do speak both languages um and I think it it really brings an uh, a sense of what the uh, the narrator is saying, and the people are living it. And I think that that makes it even more immediate and it was um, it was wonderful. I, I was just I was thrilled at uh, how the drawings were created and just how the story evolves visually. It was just great. I loved I loved the experience and I love
2: doing it. It's remarkable how through her father, Esmeralda was able to get a first-hand account of the aftermath of this hurricane and then pass that knowledge on through this story, a story that could be helpful to Puerto Ricans today.
1: I love how all the dialogue is in Spanish and the narration is in English. The juxtaposition of those languages, along with the art, sort of create this layered story. The dialogue and the characters tell the story of a specific family that survives San Felipe, but the narration strips that story down to its lessons and creates a frame around the character's narrative.
2: Hmm. This is essentially a story that tells people on the island that this is something that was learned because they needed to learn it to survive. The agregados knew how to harvest avocado, build their barracas, and replant and rebuild whenever the hurricane hit. And they did it together.
1: Together being the key word, because it's that togetherness within the community that Esmeralda believes will keep us going and that the people will find again and again.
0: And of course, as a writing memoir, you I re also I'm I'm writing history, I'm writing about a time, a place, a particular kind of um, of life that in Puerto Rico until Hurricane Maria. Puerto Ricans thought we didn't live like that anymore. But once the uh, that hurricane devastated the island, the elders who had lived, the you know, my generation, let's say, they knew how to dig up uh, some of the tubers, you know, malangas and yucas and, and batatas and those kinds of things. They knew how to reach out to whatever na- natural resources were left they were able to then teach a whole new generation how to access to it you know how to get water those kinds of things i'm talking to my even my nieces and nephews who live in uh, urbanizaciones in you know, the urban uh, areas and so they need water they just turn a faucet and water comes out all of a sudden they're surrounded by water but they can't drink it where do we find water Uh, those kinds of things were things that uh, we had to relearn on the island after the hurricane and um, and I think it's been really interesting to see how a whole new generation is trying to figure out how do we respond whenever the next terrible hurricane comes, which is inevitable obviously because of where we are and, and what's happening with the climate. I feel like I was teaching them if they had read the book, they might have learned a little bit. But also our generation still around still remembers that and is able to pass that on because those kinds of things are necessary in a place like that. You know, the people in in the Bahamas right now are going through a similar situation. And I'm sure that their elders are also having to teach them things that they had not needed to know. So I think I'm doing it on, on the page. They may be doing it just sitting around a a table or just being, you know, I think younger generations are listening more to, to, to the elders and those experiences because they may need that information. And, um, this, I think this has been a, a big part of Puerto Rican culture is that we, we did live in villages you know uh, and we lived in community and we lived in the small neighborhoods in barrios and, and everybody had to depend on each other and and I think that it's become in the last few years, as it has happened everywhere, a little bit more isolated. And I think that uh, after the disaster, they are realizing that they, that a a lot of people told me, you know, I knew the neighbor next to me on my right and the neighbor on the left and maybe the one across the street, but I didn't know anybody else. And I only just like would wave at them when we're getting in our cars, going to work or going somewhere. So now they actually know them because they had to, they had to those, you know, that lady across the street, needed help you know she was she was alone and maybe she she was she was elderly and needed to be uh, to be fed because she was she couldn't do it or the the man next door he's a uh he knows how to fix a refrigerator that broke I mean those kinds of things it used to be that people knew about those things and took care of each other in that way and then the hurricane kind of forced people to understand that that's who we are that's how we that's how we live and when you're on an island you have to <laughs> you have to do it um but i think we had lost we had lost that um and i think that 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 has come back um uh, in a way that um that is good and is positive and i think will continue
1: This reminds me of an interview we did when somebody was talking with one of our guests on the island. Rosa. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Uh, um, Well, I guess Esmeralda's words are even truer than we thought. For sure. For sure. I wasn't on the Rosa interview, though. So, of course, that didn't come to my mind first. You know what? You're right. And because I'm right, I'm going to take that one and go first. And also, Yaz was in episode three, and Rosa pops up in episode four, so... What? that
2: That's not even the same. Go
1: ahead, bro. So, before we even talk to Esmeralda, Yasmin Flores Montanez talks about the exact phenomenon where maybe you know your neighbors next to you, but probably not. People down the block. And then you meet those people down the block after the disaster hits, and it was a really funny moment because Yaz talked about community, and I was just really excited by the prospect of her actually knowing her neighbors. So, how do you feel like um, an environment where you can be so connected to people, growing up there, growing up in that type of environment, all of like affects your outlook and affects the outlook of like your neighborhood. And the people around you, like, did you know your neighbors? I mean... <laughs> that sounds so weird to say, but it's like people moving in and out of the apartment next to me, and I may or may not say hi to them.
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know my neighbors. <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, actually, um,
4: yeah, when, when I was growing up, I, I used to be, like, my neighbor used to be my best friend. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, and then my parents would talk with her parents and... and, and and we would do parties together and stuff like that. So it's like a like a community. And then, you know, when, like, I, I wasn't there, but when Hurricane Maria happened and, like, my family was telling me, like, yeah, all the neighbors just kind of came together and they would, you know, help each other. And, like, when one didn't have, like, you know, a power plant or something, they would kind of share that with everybody and, like water and stuff like that and it's like that sense of community of helping is there and like i don't know people just kind of relate and just kind of worry about each other and talk they talk a lot but that's the thing (laughs) we talk a lot so yeah
5: i do know my neighbors
2: (laughs) not gonna lie that was pretty on brand with the subject at hand really fam i had to do it but i'm not a rapper but you know what When I think back to my conversation with Rosa, she was talking about the exact same thing. People really had to rely on each other because no one, read the government, was looking out for them.
4: I think the more people are gathering together to create community. I think there wasn't a lot of community before because we're so closed off in our daily routine like oh my god I gotta get to work I don't have time to talk to the neighbors and stuff like that and the hurricane took that out of the equation and and set up another another set of challenges so I think the places that were hit the hardest are the ones who are organizing the quickest and the best like I've I've heard like a bunch of stories where people take over the schools that were closed and they're turning them into spaces where if the power goes out, they can go to, to that communal space and, and get electricity, get food. And and also, uh, I'm seeing that in, in the asambleas that are happening now. So the municipalities are, are getting together. And I'm sure that first and foremost in those agendas are the climate change problems, because I mean, I'm not I'm, I'm sure not a lot of people are fully anxious but we're worried and especially this week with uh, there's been a lot of talk about the the coast eroding away because everybody now is seeing that it's actually a thing that's happening so I think a lot of people are I'm very curious about the next election because I think that's going to be one of the, the questions that are that are going to be asked and, and I believe, I hope that if the candidate is not prepared to answer, like, this is what we're going to do because in 10 years, it's just going to get so bad. And then people won't vote for them because it's like literally life and death right now. Like, do you want Uh uh-huh, right? And it's, and, and the sad thing is like, it's like that all over the world, but here you say like, oh man, we didn't have any food because we're not. We're not self-sufficient on food. We have to wait for the boats and the stupid dock for, doesn't work for half a day almost. And it's insane. It's like a, so many steps, but I think people are perhaps maybe a little bit too slowly, but those first steps, like meeting your neighbor, establishing like, what do I do if this happens? Like those are things that are happening now and hopefully they'll bear fruit in the next election or the next year for sure.
2: So I love, love, love these kinds of finds. This is one of those threads that we saw across our conversations that we weren't even looking for. And it's just a powerful part of the culture.
1: I can't do anything but agree there, dude. It's pretty bad, in many ways, unfair. But the resilience shown and the community created in the face of hardship is amazing. Also, I don't think we've properly introduced Rosa yet. You've just been squeezing her in there.
2: Ooh, you're right, you're right. See, it's kinda hard though, because Rosa work, it blurs that line between fiction and
1: nonfiction. I see what you're saying. But you know what? I got a thing. Which is We can't do it this episode though. We're gonna hit it the next one. So why'd you bring it up? Look, get me a mic, a table saw, and a soundtrack to Creed, and talk to me during the commercial break.
2: Kinda. what, what, what is this, Keenan and Kelly? We'll be right back after this break, y'all. <laughs> Man, <laughs> What's up, podcast family? Wilson here to celebrate and commemorate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which constitutionally gave all women the right to vote. Little Redbird Press has launched a Kickstarter campaign to fund the creation of an anthology titled Votes for Women, the Battle for the 19th Amendment. So we wanted to shout them out and get y'all hip to this awesome project, which also features one of our series guests. As a contributor, none other than the active, outspoken, and wonderful Rosa Cologne. The link to the campaign is in the episode description, but you can also Google the title, Votes for Women, The Battle for the 19th Amendment, or just search for it directly
1: at kickstarter.com. So we're back, and we don't got to get into what we talked about over that break till next episode, but it's going to be dope. All right. Well, back here in the present. Right, right. So... We talked a bit about how the family on the island comes together. But like Rosa said, when she capped off you and Avani's episode, families fight sometimes, but it's all love at the end of the day. Yeah,
2: true. That's such realness, yo. That's an idea that I'll be carrying with me for a real long time.
1: Esmeralda's story ends after a second hurricane hits Seprian, And coincidentally, the aftermath of Seprian plays a big role in the next story we're going to talk about today. Maestro, ran by Isabel Sofia Diepa, illustrated by Jethro Morales, colored by Alex Lambert, with Adrian Martinez on letters again. Yo, Adrian be putting in that work, yo.
2: But while San Felipe speaks to Boricuas on the island, Maestro is a letter to Puerto Ricans on mainland U.S. who feel that twinge of anguish by not being on the island.
1: It also includes the poet Luis Palés Matos, who is considered one of the founders of the Negrismo movement, which is all about Afro-Caribbeans taking pride in themselves and their heritage. Yo,
2: Maestro is a multi-layered story in just a few short pages. And since comics are such a visual medium, it's hard to really capture it through description.
1: That's why we're going to try something new. For the first time, we are trying to adapt a comic story for your ears. And without further ado... We bring you Maestro.
5: Maestro. I was hoping my trip to Puerto Rico would be full of days at the beach and having fun. But instead, I feel heartbroken to be back. To be honest, a part of me feels guilty. Who am I to come back and help? After all, I left the island to pursue my goals. When I arrived on the islands, Maraton and Papi were so happy to see me. It was a blessing. I knew that our house in Wayama would not be the same after they were Huracan, but I just had to see it. On the drive over, Papi tried to prepare me for what we would see. Está bien, he said. But remember, there was an old house. It had already lived its days. (coughs) Hey, Conan, you've got him big, boy. I'm sure Conan doesn't know the difference, but Papi could probably see that I was overcome with guilt. Parts of the roof had blown off, and there were broken windows and water damage. Where was I when all of this happened? My dad has always been a glass-half-full kind of person, where I have always been a bit more pessimistic. I looked around the house to see what remained of the walls I grew up in. I took a moment to collect myself. Then I hear papi's voice. Tengo algo especial para ti. Papi! El traje de la abuela Ramona! I couldn't believe it. I thought we lost it before the storm ever even happened. I hugged puppy and slid on the beautiful green dress that belonged to my grandmother. Having the dress on made me feel safe. I felt relaxed for the first time since I'd been back and drifted. Then I heard a voice called, Romanita! Romanita! This makes no sense. Who would mistake me for my grandmother? I look up and I can't believe what I see. It was definitely Josefina, Abuela Ramona's best friend. But she was so young. She was excited because she wanted us to go meet Maestro Luis. I follow her confused. I do not remember a Maestro Luis and Abuela's stories. I follow Josefina and I see Luis Pález Matos. He's reciting a poem from his new book. It's not new to me. I know this poem. Maestro Luis grew up in Guayama. He is one of my favorite poets. I know every word. Estás en pirata y negro. Mi isla verde estilizada. El negro te da la sombra. Te da la línea en pirata. Tambor y arcabuz a un tiempo, tu morena gloria exaltan, con rojas flores de pólvora y bravos ritmos de bambola. Cuando el huracán desdobla su fiero acordeón de ráfagas, en la punta de los pies, ágil, payadera, danza sobre la alfombra del mar, con fina pierna de palmas. Ten con ten, el tema local. He read every word beautifully. When he was done, Josefina insisted we had him sign our book. As he signed our book, he tells me it's been five years since Huracán San Ciprián. I was... was I really? In 1937? The guayama I was looking at was full of citrus trees, and Maestro Luis said the sugarcane and coffee crops were getting better. He assured me it would be okay. We are like the roots of the palm trees, he said. We are sturdy and love our tierra borinquen. As I walked back home with Josefina, I took in the scenery. The trees stretching toward the sky and the smell of the amapolas. I could stay here forever. Josefina went inside the house, but I wanted to stay here just a little longer. I laid in the hammock we had in the backyard and began reading the book from Maestro. What? Conan, what are you doing here? Am I back? I must have dozed off. It looked like next to me on the bed was the book from my dream, but it couldn't be. There was only one way to confirm. I opened it, and inside was this note. Para Josefina y Ramonito, el alma de Puerto Rico vive en ustedes.
1: The soul of Puerto Rico lives in you.
5: Ojalá que el amor y la poesía siga creciendo.
1: I hope your love of poetry continues to grow.
5: Con la ayuda de ustedes, las tradiciones y cultura de nuestra isla vivirán para siempre.
1: With your help, the traditions and culture of our island will live forever.
5: Atentamente, Luis Vales Matos. Paloma, ¿lista? I hear Papi's voice downstairs. I will change and then I'll be right down. Lista para trabajar. I'm ready to
1: work. Man, what Isabel and the team did on the story and six pages and how it all comes together is pretty incredible. It captures a very real feeling many in the diaspora have and the story is so personal for her.
3: The story is about the town that I grew up in, Guayama, and about the poet Luis Palemato who was very influential to me as a kid but it was really based on... A kind of like the feeling that i had because i was living here when the hurricane hit and my brother was down there with my dad and i felt really guilty because i couldn't go down to puerto rico and i wasn't there and i was trying to do as much as i could and when i wrote the story i kind of wanted to write a story of healing and a story of from the perspective of a girl who is in the diaspora, who feels like, you know, who am I to be able to go back and try to help now? Which I felt like a lot of people felt that way as well. And I wanted to give homage to my grandmother who had passed away a few years ago as well. And so that's why the Ramonita is there. The name Ramona is there.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm cuss real quick. That was some deep, deep shit, y'all. Like, wow, wow. So, yeah i just that twinge of anguish i said earlier nah that's a full-blown punch in the chest amount of anguish and we're just gonna have that sit there for a bit so we're gonna loop to commercial break gather ourselves and see y'all on the other side
1: all right listeners if you are enjoying listening to our podcast and you're not already hip you need to know about one of my favorite, favorite podcasts. As soon as that theme music hits and Latino USA starts playing, I know I'm in for a good time. Maria Hinojosa is an amazing show host, and every week she shows how our identity can in fact enhance the journalism despite what certain practices will have you believe. The show is a masterclass on audio storytelling, and if you haven't listened before or anything else Futuro Media puts out, we wanted to get you hip to two recent episodes. The first one, which aired January 31st, called Digging Into American Dirt, covered the book's controversy. And wow, Maria did an amazing job. I mean, Wilson listens to Latino USA too, and he knows. Yeah, that thing
2: was ridiculous. Um, my knee-jerk reactions were so, like, volatile. And I was simply impressed by how level and fair and balanced... Maria was, is' just kind of like, man, if I can study at her feet, I damn sure would.
1: It's one of those all-side stories that doesn't feel preachy and is intelligent and just amazing all around. Another episode they recently put out called Ornella and Violetta tells the story of a mother and her four-year-old daughter's relationship during her seven-month detention in an ICE facility, and Man, it's a real story with real letters exchanged during that time and it's just a tear jerker. And so if you are not already hip and you are not subscribed, please, please, please go subscribe to Latino USA. Both our storytellers today are part of the diaspora and both made very real, tangible moves. Isabel, in fact, getting the first A-plane to the island because she was working with a team that was already on it before Maria even hit
3: after it hit i was i was really sad and the day after, you know, I knew that there was a total blackout, and I was expect I was expecting a blackout of certain areas. I didn't expect total, complete, one hundred percent blackout. But I was like, shit! I was at work, and I got this phone call that said zero 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 zero, and I was like, who is this? And I thought that it was like a like my loan. My, like, student loans or something. And I was like, let me love. I paid you. (laughs) So, but I answer it, and it was my brother. He was calling from the military line because his girlfriend was in the military. And he tried calling my mom, but my mom hadn't answered. And so he was like, I know that Isabel will answer any weird number. So, (laughs) which is, like, very sweet, right? Like, what a brotherly thing to say. Like, I know that you'll answer anyone. Like, okay. (laughs) So, but that's also like, good. I was happy I answered the phone and like, it's weird. I had done an interview with someone the day prior for an article and I accidentally left my recorder on and I didn't realize that I recorded that whole conversation with him. So I still have it and it gives me goosebumps because like I answered the phone and he's like, hola hermana. And I just started crying Because, like, I was so lucky I I heard from him the day after and, you know, and he just, like, told me that we didn't have a house anymore and that everything, there was just, like, buckets of water. There was no roof. Buckets of water came in through through the house. And I was really, really sad and um I had been working here in Chicago. I was working with the Puerto Rican Agenda, I was volunteering with them, and I helped to coordinate media and to coordinate um, to get the first plane on the island five days after like it was kind of a whirlwind I got to work with um Congressman Gutierrez and um, his press people and I helped coordinate and organize um to get the the first with with not just me but like I helped I was with the group um to help get the first plane on the island five days after the hurricane hit which was before we got there before like government aid hit the island and that's because we were ready like we we knew we knew how catastrophic the storm was going to be and we also um irma was supposed to hit and irma didn't hit and we were ready from irma I was like, I'm a warrior. When Irma was going to hit, I I had just finished doing some work with the Puerto Rican agenda and um, Jose uh, from the from the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, who um, Jose Lopez, who's the brother of Oscar Lopez. So Oscar Lopez um, was a political prisoner who Obama had pardoned. Although it was never proven, he went he was sent to jail because um, they had accused him of planning to plant bombs but it it was something that he didn't do so his brother Jose Lopez is the head of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center and so I had met with him before Irma hit because like I'm my brother's big sister and I will protect him against everything And and I literally was like are we ready for Irma And he was like, what? And I was like, Irma's supposed to be really, really bad and we need to prepare. And so like I helped coordinate press and media and like he was like, yeah, let's work with the Puerto Rican agenda. And we got all that ready. And then nothing, um, you know, it didn't do as much harm as what we thought. But we sent aid. And then when Hurricane Maria hit, because we had done all that preparation weeks before with Irma, it really helped out. So... When I, I talked to my brother, and I really wanted to go down there, like I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest, and I, I have always taken my big sister's responsibility very, very seriously, and like I love my brothers, and I will protect my brothers. Like the, like the joke is, my my friends tell me that like I like playing paladins because like they say that I'm a paladin in real life, and I'm like I don't, I don't think you guys are right, but whatever.
2: Yo, such dedication. That's a real one. So Esmeralda may not have been a part of the advance guard, you know what I'm saying? But as soon as she found out, it became top, top priority for her. And she worked with her family to send supplies and whatever other kind of aid she could.
0: Oh, my God. The hurricane was probably, that was a horrible time for A horrible time for me because um, I had at the time still uh, my 96-year-old Aunt was still there and I have many, many cousins who live there. Um, and the hurricane came, uh, less than a year from when my mother passed away. So I was still kind of grieving, you know, the loss of both of my parents within a year of each other, but I was really close to my mom and, and I was still kind of going through that. And then all of a sudden this disaster strikes the island um and i had to kind of focus on what can i do to help and that's what i put a lot of my energy i basically i basically put everything else Aside in service of, um, what I could do to help the people on the island. And so, you know, I, I just focused on raising money here and preparing uh, care packages to, to be delivered because you couldn't even send them by mail or federal express or none of that stuff. Um, and so, uh, two of my nieces work for the airlines. And I have to say that, um, both American Airlines and JetBlue, which are their the companies that they work with, they, they were amazing allowing their employees to bring huge amounts of uh, supplies to their families on the island for no extra charge or anything like that and and they did that and so we were able to send all kinds of things that were absolutely essential for our families and their friends because we were bringing we would be sending things that was not just just for the people that we we knew and loved but they were sharing it with their neighbors and and friends and and people that needed them so so that became really my My mission for, you know, many weeks of, of doing that. Um, and then the first few weeks, of course, we couldn't connect with anyone. So we didn't know what was happening. So in the case of uh, bringing all these materials, what the airlines had set up in the hangars themselves, they had just these packages, these boxes full of the materials that their employees had had brought. And so when we were able to connect, then we would let them know, we could text them, you know, Jeanette is going to be there on such a day and she's going to be there from such and such a time to such and such a time. She could deliver the Items to them when we were able to connect, we were able to do that. But there were, you know, many, many, many days where we weren't able to connect, and in, in the process, we we lost touch with a lot of people, including one of my uh, one of my cousins who was very, very close to my mother and who passed away ten days after the hurricane. But we didn't find out until many, many months afterwards. It was a, a a challenging time, I think, for all all of us who were not there and those of us who were unable to connect with loved ones or friends who who needed us. You know, we knew they needed us, but we couldn't reach them and they couldn't reach us. So that was um, a very, very difficult time.
1: The response is incredible. It really brings me back again to you and Ivani and what you were getting at last episode. The support and real tangible effort from Puerto Ricans in the States is an example that they're Puerto Rican enough already.
2: Yeah, word. And it's like Rosa said, right? Families fight, but it's still family, it's still all love. And when it gets real, when it gets really real, come hell or high water, best believe your family will always have your back.
1: And everyone helps in their own way. That's why before we close out the episode, I think it's only right we shout out Reconstruction the anthology both these stories came from that was made in an effort to help people in the wake of the hurricane. Facts.
2: So, we didn't get a chance to talk to Eduardo Miranda Rodriguez, right, creator of the Reconstruction Anthology and La Kenya, but through his continual effort to help those affected by the hurricane, we put a little something together to, you know what I'm saying, highlight him.
6: We live in an era where people are more concerned with popular culture, you know? They're like, they can talk to you about the box office revenue for the last, you know, superhero film or how much this celebrity earned, but nobody can tell you how much per capita income is in Puerto Rico or how this debt is affecting real people. So I thought to myself, well, let me invade the space of popular culture and let me create my own superhero, La Borinquena. Let's give her a colorful costume, let's give her a cape, let's give her a superhero origin story. But instead of it being based in Greek, Norse, Roman mythology. I thought to myself, well, why don't I look into Puerto Rican mythology and mysticism? And I crafted a whole story around that, connecting her to a real history, creating a character that would embrace heritage unapologetically and be a symbol and an icon for hope. I thought, well, let's name her La Borinquena because that would literally translate into the Puerto Rican woman. And my wife came up with the idea, well, what if she deals with a tropical storm? And I thought, well, in the space of comic books, it's hyperbole. Why don't I exaggerate it? What if it's a storm that is so severe that it leaves the entire island in a blackout? And that was nine months before Hurricane Maria. And nine months after that, when Hurricane Maria was approached by DC Comics, and this idea came about to actually create Reconstruction. And Reconstruction was the first time that these characters in their 80-year combined canon would come to Puerto Rico. Via this book, we were able to raise a quarter of a million dollars. And my wife created the Laborinqueña Grants Program. And so annually, what we do in Puerto Rico is that we return to the island and we distribute $10,000 grants to small organizations across the island. We just did a second annual award ceremony this past August in Puerto Rico. And it was the first time that Mayor Cruz of San Juan supported our efforts, that she actually hosted the event for us. And in that space, told everyone within the earshot that La Borinquena is Puerto Rico's official superhero. In an industry where 30,000 characters exist between DC and Marvel, only 1% are actually Latinx characters. So creating a character that is actually reflective of our heritage, reflective of our culture, and also utilizing the talent that already exists in an industry, well, what I really hope it does is that it inspires people to recognize that they
2: can do it too. La Barincania, the Grant La Barincania, right? helps grassroots organizations who have direct contact with people on the ground and are, in fact, people of the
1: ground. That's the dope part about all of this. We help how we can. That's why every guest we've had on this season helped with their art, because they were helping how they could. It's a community effort taking place on the island and in the diaspora. Yeah, and that's why
2: it'll take more than a hurricane and other natural disasters to stop this strong and resilient culture and its people.
1: I was thinking about our Taino myth, how Guapan sex summoned the winds of change, and there's people who saw her fires and rain as bad. And while they were most certainly a problem, they allowed parts of nature to grow anew. Okay, all right. So if Huracan are winds summoned by Guapan sex, maybe the winds are there to remind Boriquas who they are, a people who have the strength to rise despite it seeming like everyone and everything has it out for them. Like that rose that grew from concrete, they can overcome because they have each other.
2: Ooh, word, word, I see what you mean. And with that, I want all Puerto Ricans listening right now to hear the sound of my voice that helped in any way that you could. I want you to know that the Esmeralda Santiago, the incomparable, illustrious Esmeralda Santiago, is proud of you.
0: I do remember being so proud of the Puerto Ricanos here in in the United States who really, really just stepped up. You know, raising money for, for the people, collecting materials, preparing packages, uh, having all kinds of activities to provide things that the people needed, um, desperately, including medications, uh, seeds, um, you know, penicillin. I mean, just all kinds of things that everything, everything was needed. And I was just so very, just so proud that, that people really took the diaspora, really took it very, very seriously. And did everything they could to not only make sure that a lot of the need was met that it was not being met by the government agencies, but also they made sure that people in the United States did not forget that this disaster was happening. And so it was just very moving to me, and, uh, and I was I was just very proud of of our community of Puerto Ricanos outside of the island. And just how many efforts we, we made to make sure that, that our compatriotas were taken care of as much as we could, but also that this, did, this did not become just another story that gets forgotten, you know. So those kinds of things are the, the, the sadness and the, the drama, the trauma is tempered. By the response and and how again just this generosity, this warmth, this willingness to to be neighborly is is such a big part of our of of who we are. And it was just really demonstrated to the world. I I, I was just thought it was just so wonderful. But we're still you know it's still happening. I mean I was just in Puerto Rico just this last uh, few days until yesterday, and um, there's still a lot that needs to be done and they still need a lot of help, but at least they know that they're not forgotten.
2: Okay, so that's all we have today on Rico Solenios. Everything going on on the island, we hope that you can contribute in your own way. So, this episode's audio dialogue editor, the recording mixer, is Vanessa Flores. This is the same job she's been doing all season long. We're gonna try to be a lot more specific since that's what it says on her website. You know what I'm saying? We don't give her the title that she
1: got. Check her out at audio.com She's a boss. The homie Deviant Sounds is still in recovery from his accident, but he's able to work a little bit now, and so he'll still be covering our musical styling. It's a level of dedication that we really appreciate, y'all, and we're glad to have him along for the ride. Yeah, he's a real one. Shout out to him. Best, best wishes right there. So,
2: a big, big, big shout out to our illustrator for this season's cover art, also named Vanessa Flores. You can find her ill work on Twitter, at Vanny Flores, and check out her website, vanessafloresart.com.
1: Esmeralda and Isabel were featured as characters for our episode two, Negrita, but a rundown of their work can still be found in the episode description, and you can go back to our episode about Blackness and its intersection with Puerto Rican identity. We have to, have to, have to shout out the Reconstruction
2: Anthology, and La Kenya. If you have not picked that up yet, go do that. It's a great read with some amazing creators.
1: Shout out to Isabel and her new job with the Fresno Bee. We see you, girl, reporting and whatnot. Life changes made over the course of this season. Just three episodes. Yeah, and while we didn't get to
2: have you on as a guest, as we hoped, we do, do, do hope that we did justice to your piece, Maestro.
1: Shout out to Nilse Alvarez, who came through in the clutch with the voice work to make that audio adaptation happen. I appreciate you so much.
2: There we go. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you can follow us on our very own Twitter account, at Pod.
2: And you can follow me on my Twitter account, at WordToWilson. I'll be tweeting a little bit more. I'll be shouting out the podcast episodes and uh, series that I like now, so you know. I'll
1: be here active a little bit. See you, tweeting stuff find me tweeting stuff at shens de Grillo. put the underscore after shens and uh um i be talking about podcasts and fiction and sometimes politics and you can also engage in the discussion about this podcast rico and sueños online by using our frequent hashtag poyif that's hashtag p-o-y-i-f and the hashtag for this season is hashtag rich and dreams which is the English version of hashtag Rico and Suenios. We also
2: have a website over at POYIF.com, P-O-Y-I-F.com. And don't forget to tell a friend, tell a friend, to tell a friend about us and this season. And definitely Consider Dropping some coins in our Patreon bucket with our newly established tiers. I'm saying check that out at patreon.com forward slash oh
1: yeah. We got one more episode left in our six episode art, so stay tuned for the epic conclusion. That will include Rosa Colon. Like I said, I was scheming earlier. And if you want to study up in the meantime when we were talking about La Junta, pick up the Puerto Rico Strong Anthology and read her story A Broken Promessa and follow that thread into the rabbit hole.
2: Real. So this has been Three Coincelanios, Inaugural Season, the Power of Human Fiction Podcast.
1: The nonfiction podcast about fiction and its very real effects on our lives. Ciao.